You just heard Big Enough to Be a Mountain from Kentucky's very own Tiffany Williams, who is making her name as a songwriter down in Nashville. You're listening to WUKY 91.3 FM. We are listener-supported radio, and I'm Silas House, your host here on the porch. Today, I'm so happy to be talking to Mary Laura Philpott on the phone. Mary Laura is the author of a highly acclaimed new essay collection called I Miss You When I Blink, which takes the reader through writing about the occasionally daunting pressures of being a modern woman in essays that are poignant, vulnerable, and most often hilarious. Mary Laura's writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, the Paris Review, too many other places to mention. She is also the very charming and Emmy-winning co-host of the literary interview show A Word on Words, which can be seen on Nashville Public Television, and you can also find it on YouTube. She lives in Nashville. Hi, Mary Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Silas. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I know that you have been uh, all over the place on book tour recently and are are so busy right now, so we're really glad to have you. Um, Oh, this is fun. The best thing about the listeners of On the Porch is that they are readers. So I love that. (laughs) I knew you would. So with that in mind, why don't you tell them what you want them to know about I Miss You When I Blink? Oh, what a great open-ended question. Um, Here's what I want you to know about I Miss You When I Blink. If you are a person who has even a touch of perfectionism or type A tendencies and you like to get things right in life, this might be a book for you. If you are a person who is at a decision point in your life, whether 22 and you're coming out of school trying to decide what you're going to be, or you're 52 and you're thinking about reinventing yourself and starting a different career or getting in or out of a relationship, this might be the book for you because that's what I'm writing about here is reinvention and all the times in my life that I came to a point where I said, okay, I, I made the choices that brought me to this place, but I'm not sure this is the place for me anymore. Now, what do I do? So I love the title. And thank you. And it's just uh, you bring so many layers to it. So can you just tell us about the title and the way it's become a mantra for you? Yeah, yeah. I love the title, too. I can say that without bragging because I didn't make it up. (laughs) um, I stole it. It is from I didn't stole it. I didn't steal it. I asked politely to borrow it. (laughs) It was um, made up by my son, who is now a teenager. I have two kids who are bigger than me. But back when they were little and he was about six, he was drawing uh, on a notepad and he was making up a little poem. And it was like, I miss you in the sink. I miss you in the skating rink. I miss you when I blink. And I took that piece of paper that he wrote that little poem on and I stuck it on the wall of my office. And day after day, I would walk down to my office to do my work as a freelance copywriter. And every day I would see that there. And over the years, it started to, it stuck in my mind the way a song lyric will Mm -hmm. stick in your head. And you know how sometimes a song can be about one thing, but your brain kind of turns it into something about yourself. Mm -hmm. It started to mean to me, not just what a cute little phrase. I miss you when I blink. What a, you know, what an adorable precocious six-year-old I have. But the when I blink part came to represent time and how fast it moves mm. and how it keeps moving faster, which is an obsession of mine. I really I just desperately wish for someone to invent a time machine. And 
the I miss you part came to represent what I missed about myself, not just my past self, like the person I was 20 years ago or 10 years ago, but also the person I meant to be and things I meant to do but didn't quite do. And as I you know, got older and got further into adulthood and got into sort of a period of melancholy in my life where I wasn't totally happy with my day-to-day existence, that phrase became a touchstone. Like, I miss myself as time is going past. But if I can look back at who I've been and what I've done, I can figure out what to do to go forward. Right. I think we all have that moment where we we realize we've lost ourselves, you know, yeah. who we used to be. So I thought that's such a relatable part of the book. Um, it sneaks up on you. Right. Uh, do you know that song um, from the musical Waitress? Um, she Used to Be Mine? She Used to Be Mine, yes. That reminds oh me of that. Oh, my God, yeah. yes. Yeah, we're, we played that earlier in the show in, in tribute to to this idea of I miss you when I blink. So. Oh, thank you. That song, <laughs> I, I once drove down from Nashville to the Mississippi Festival in Jackson, which is a six-hour drive, and there is a long portion of that drive where no radio stations come in. Mm-hmm. And so I had to, you know, blast music from my phone in the cup holder of my car. And I had that song on repeat, just belting it, and I don't know what was going through my hormonal system at that, that time, but sobbing. I love that song. Me too. It's it's one that I sing in my car as well. It's a, it's a good one for that. <laughs> we, we should do it sometime. <laughs> You you mentioned the idea of being a perfectionist, and it's something that you do talk about quite a bit in the book. Um, mm-hmm. you're, you're very honest about that, and so tell tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's it is a thing about me, as I say in the book. You know how every every dish has some flavor that comes through strongly, the cilantro, <laughs> if you will, and that is my cilantro. Like that is the thing about me that even as I become more self-aware of it and I become better able to manage it, it will never change. I am a person, whether by nature or nurture, wants to get everything right. And there is some little scrap in my brain that believes if I just can get every answer right to everything I'm doing, I will earn the love and approval of everyone around me, and I will earn my right to be a human being on this earth. And I know that that's twisted. I know that's not right but it is still how my brain works. And it it plays out in my life, um, and I write about this in the book, it, it plays out in some funny ways. You know, like I'm always, I'm, I'm like always on a game show nobody else can see. Like I'm playing by these rules and making these little bargains and, you know, trying to do everything just right. But it also can be sad, you know, yes. can be sad and it can be frustrating and limiting because in adult life, most things don't have one clear right answer. And sometimes there is a clear right answer to what you should do in a given situation. And it's the right thing for you then, and it might be the right thing for you a year later. But maybe five years later, you look up and that's not the right thing for you anymore. And if you're a type A-ish, perfectionist-ish person, feeling like, oh no, this thing I did with, you know, with great intentions and great purpose isn't right for me anymore, that feels catastrophic. Yes, I have a child who's a perfectionist, and it it really makes life very difficult in yeah. in lots of ways. He's an artist, and he will paint these paintings that I just think are, I mean, of course, I'm his father, so I just think they're works <laughs> of genius, you know, and then he'll right. paint over them and say, no, it's awful. 
Oh, (laughs) that combination of being an artist and a perfectionist is particularly difficult. Exactly, yes. It's tough. Well, speaking of of children, another thing that comes up in the book is, you put it this way, quote, when you realize your child no longer needs you to be his daily sidekick. I've been going through that myself with with both of my children in college and, you know, uh, they're actually, you know, have their own lives, which yeah. I always wanted for them to have. Right. But now I'm not so happy about it <laughs> you know, I know. because I, I want them and I know they'll come back eventually. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that is such a hard thing as a parent to go through. Can you talk a little bit about that? It is. I mean, it's like you say, it's exactly the right thing. If you've done your job right as a parent, mm-hmm. they go off exactly. and have lives yeah. that are away from you and and you feel proud of them and it feels great. And I'm not quite there yet. That's right ahead of me on this train mm-hmm. track of life. So mine are teenagers, but they haven't left the nest yet, but I know it's coming and it just haunts me. This mm-hmm. is why I write in the book out how desperately I want a time machine. Yes. It isn't that I want to go back and and re and like reset the clock and go back to when they're babies and be in that time permanently. It's not that. I love who they are right now. I love mm-hmm. I love everything about my life right now. It's great. But I, I do wish I could bounce back and forth. Like I wish I could say, okay, pause right now with my teenage children who are about to leave the nest. And let me go back for just a day yes. to when I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And all we did all day was sit on the floor of our kitchen and and. They, I was their world and they were my world. Let me just do that for a day. I don't want to go back and do that permanently because that got really <laughs> suffocating and tough day after day after day. But I would love to be able to move back and forth. And I guess in some ways writing writing autobiographical essays is, is something that helps me do that a little bit. Exactly. Times. Yeah, I'm a fiction writer. And, you know, one thing that I do in my novels um, is I will preserve little moments in time. You know, mm-hmm. like, um, for instance, in my second book, uh, I have a scene where a child is going running out into a field of wildflowers, and I wanted to preserve this moment I really had with my daughter, you know. Oh. So that it is a great thing about writing and the way it can preserve those moments mm-hmm. and allow us to revisit them. Mm-hmm. That's so. really cool. That makes me want to go back and read, like, Pick up Southernmost and like have you walk me through it and tell me like where are the little moments that you plucked out of life and preserved in there? Yeah, when you're spending you know six or seven years with a a book, you you have to entertain yourself in some right. <laughs> some ways. Right. So those are my little Easter eggs for myself in there. I love that. Well, often your essays are so funny. I find it very hard to write comedy. I would like to think that I'm pretty funny, you know, one-on-one or talking to people in real life, but on the page, I'm so serious. And <laughs> and I find it really hard to be funny on the page. Is that something that just naturally comes up for you when you sit down to write? It is. Humor is my coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what this book is about are my obsessions and my things that actually make me very sad or that make me... Um, angry or that I'm conflicted about. And because I am dwelling in all those things in this book, my, my coping mechanism kicks in. So that's why you get the humor. It, it shows up as the little counter argument to every dark thing that I say. And my brain has always mm-hmm. worked like that. I did actually strip some of the comedy out 
of this book. Hmm. In um, earlier drafts, there were more one-liners and more moments where I would say something sort of dark or poignant and then immediately, you know, ta-da, hit it with a joke (laughs) after because that is how my brain works. But when I went back and read it and when I read it with my editor, we could see that not every bit of how my mind works needs to be how the book works. Mm. So we pulled some of that out, which I I think was good. I, I, I hope that ended up with a good balance. I love working with an editor. I love that collaboration that happens. Yes. Did, did you have that experience as well? Oh my gosh, yes. I love being edited by a good editor. Me too. I had I had an interesting conversation. Um, I think this was actually on a, another podcast at some point this month, but someone said, as a perfectionist, is it hard for you to accept being edited? And I said, no, as a perfectionist, what I want more than anything is right. to work with a good editor. Because when you get your work as good as you can get, and you've taken it as far as you can take it, to have somebody come in and go, guess what? I'm going to show you the secret hidden door. If you open up this, it can even get better. Exactly. It's wonderful. Yes. I love it. Yeah, yeah. When people talk to me about how much they hate being edited and how much they hate you know, working with an editor, I always think, mm-hmm. well, that's because you haven't worked with a really good one because they make right. it so much better. Right. It is certainly frustrating to work with a not great editor, which I have done <laughs> a couple of times on individual pieces. And that is frustrating when somebody doesn't when somebody doesn't pick up what you're putting down and they're like, you know, this is coming across wrong and you need to cut this and, and you know in your gut that that's wrong, that is frustrating. But luckily that is not the experience I had with this book. We're visiting with author Mary Laura Philpot here on the porch. I'm your host, Silas House. And you're listening to WUKY 91.3 FM listener-supported radio. Well, there's a really great essay in the book that involves 9-11. At one point, you write, As the war on terror raged on, the world spun into a state of heightened unrest. The longer we lived it, it seemed, the more terribly human beings treated each other. The nightly news became more frightening, not less. End quote. I would venture to say that these are even more frightening times in, in, oh in a God, different yeah. way. But has writing always been something that has helped you to survive the feeling of chaos in, in the world and in your life? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, in some ways it's frustrating because there is no way to write your way around what is happening in the world. Like, we we do currently live in chaotic and often disturbing times, and there's nothing I can write that will make that not be true. But I can at least write through what I'm seeing, I can write through what I'm hearing, and I can write through what I'm feeling. And usually, I understand my own thought processes better once I have written them down. Mm -hmm. You talk very honestly in the book about depression and the pressures of modern life. Was it difficult for you to reveal some of that? It was. I definitely saved it for last. Like I wrote every Mm -hmm. other essay I could write (laughs) until, (laughs) you know, I had that narrative arc like almost locked up except for, you know, three important holes without which you could not build this arc. I I didn't really want to go into that stuff, but at the same time, I couldn't tell this story without it. 
you know, this is an essay collection. You could, in theory, pick it up, pick it up, and put it down, and read one essay at a time, and be fine. But if you read it from start to finish, it reads like a memoir. That's the the idea is that there is mm-hmm. this narrative arc to it. Yes. And if I just left those pieces out, it wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. The story wouldn't have the tension that it had in real life, mm-hmm. which is, you know, all our lives have stakes. You know, the stakes are high even in just regular everyday life. And, and none of that would make sense without writing about the darker times. So I did finally make myself do it. And as I was doing it, I told myself, you know what, somebody else who is going to read this book right now feels the way I felt in the things that are happening yes. in this essay yeah. and putting it on paper might help somebody. So that, that helped a little. Yeah. Now I know that you love Brandy Carlisle. You mentioned her a couple so of times much. in the book. And I love her so much too. <laughs> I used to go see her when she would play these tiny little venues in Nashville and Louisville, and now she's on the Grammys, and everybody knows about her. What do you like about her? Do you think she knows how much we love her, Silas? I hope so. I hope she she listens to this show. (laughs) I saw her once in a teeny, teeny, teeny show in Eddie's Attic in Decatur, Georgia. Mm. Here's what I love about her. Her songwriting, first of all, is fantastic. What she and the twins write and the way they put it I'm fascinated by song structure. I'm not a songwriter, but I'm a like, songwriting appreciator. Mm-hmm. So I love the writing. I mean, her voice yes. is lovely. She's a great performer. She interacts with the audience so well. She's just, she is someone who, when you are in her presence and listening to her sing, you not only feel like, oh, hey, here is, I'm connecting with this real human person right in front of me, but you also feel like you're in the presence of just talent on yes. a whole other level. And she gives, and her songs, they get richer as you listen to mm-hmm. them. There are albums that are years and years and years old yes. that that even now I will listen to and suddenly notice something I've never noticed before. Right. And that's amazing. And she gives back so much. You know, she's a, she such does. a charitable person. Yeah, listen at us. But do you have a favorite song by her? That I mean, is there one that you could pick as a favorite? Oh my gosh. I know I'm no, putting you on the spot. I have ten. <laughs> no, I have ten favorite Brandy Carlisle songs. My first, my first favorite Brandy Carlisle song was, is it called Tragedy? Yes. Is that the one? It's a great one. Yeah. yeah. And there's a version of it with cello, yes, the cello in the background. I remember the first time I heard that song going, what, what is this? That was the first mm-hmm. song I ever heard of hers going, what is this? Who, who is she? What is happening here? And I loved that whole album i mean i've loved everything she's done since mm-hmm. yeah it's just it's that emotion it as a, yeah she keeps it fresh as a performer too like she's she changes up what she does you're not hearing the same song again and again and again right one thing we always like to talk about on here is the music you're loving right now so what are you loving right now besides brandy oh man um i've been going through I, and i think this is not just me this is a cultural moment i'm going through some sort of like fleetwood mac retrospective mm. phase yeah they never ever get old i never get tired of them they never get old that same drive to mississippi that i was talking about when i when i stopped sobbing to the song from waitress a hundred times in a row <laughs> i put on fleetwood mac like i just i recently rediscovered my love of their song hold me with the little piano mm-hmm. at the beginning yes it's so good I love them. I love, you know, there's an epigraph at the beginning of my book from the Decemberists, and it's a song called Mm -hmm. The Singer Addresses His Audience. And it's a song about, apparently, about a boy band 
And this lead singer of the boy band who has gotten famous and made his reputation on this particular type of music wants to branch out and be different and try something new. And he's saying to his audience, we know, we know we belong to you and you've, you've built your lives around us, but we have to change. Mm. You have to let us change. And I took that little snippet and, of course, completely reinterpreted it as you know, something about modern life. But I love that song. I love one of the songs that I would listen to uh, when I was recording the audiobook for Miss You When I Blink, and I had to record those chapters about the really dark, kind of mm-hmm. depressing stuff. What I would listen to at the end of the day after recording was the Decemberist song, Everything is Awful. Mm-hmm. It is hilarious. It's this really <laughs> upbeat like, you listen to the beginning and you're like, oh, this sounds like a jingle. Like, what is this going to be? And, the, you know, the chorus is, everything is awful. <laughs> and it's, it's, fan- it's one of my favorite songs I will look ever. that one up. Look it up. It's wonderful. What about books? Um, in your role as a true Renaissance woman, you're not only a TV show host and an essayist, but you also work with Parnassus Books, yes. the great indie bookstore in Nashville. So we're always yeah. looking for book recommendations on here. Oh my gosh, there are so many. This is one of those questions that I should be able to answer succinctly, mm-hmm. but I always end up like paralyzed by so much good <laughs> right. stuff. Um, I was thinking before we started this call, like what can I recommend that's just about to come out so that like people mm-hmm. will hear this and then they can go get these books. Um, there are a couple books coming out in May. I'm pretty sure it's May that I love, and they're both memoirs. One is called Once More We Saw Stars. Mm-hmm. by Jason Green. Okay. And it is about and you may have read about this in the news when it happens. He's he's a writer. He was in New York. His toddler daughter was killed in a freak accident. She was sitting on a a bench in New York with her grandmother and a a piece of concrete just fell off the building they were sitting in front of and landed on her and killed her. And it's it you know going into it it's going to be a sad book. Mm-hmm. I mean it is just it's a heartbreaking thing to write through. But his emotional range in this book is so much wider than you expect. And Mm. he writes about forgiveness and moving on and how do you hold grief in your life. And it's just a stunning, stunning book. And then another one, totally different feel, but a memoir that also will be out in May, is Out East by John Glenn. Okay. And John, it's, he's another New York writer. He actually works in publishing, but he he's younger than me by a good bit. And he writes about this summer when he was, I want to say 27, 26-ish. But, you know, an adult, a young adult, but an adult. This summer where he and a bunch of his friends had a timeshare house out in Montauk. And it was the summer that he realized he is gay. Mm-hmm. And he writes about this summer with such... What looks on the surface like breezy conversational language, but it is so carefully, artfully done. He is telling this story in this fun, summertimey way, but also getting into really, really deep emotional territory of this, you know, this first crush and how it felt and how to and how to realize, oh, you know, I'm an adult person and I thought I was fully cooked and I've just learned something major about myself. Mm. Um, and it's just a, it's a fun happy, meaningful, just great book. Like that should be in everybody's beach bag. So those are those are two from May, if I were to recommend. Good to know. Good recommendations. Thank yeah. you. 
Well, in conclusion, I want to remind everyone to go out and before you get those books she just recommended, you need to get a copy of I Miss You When I Blink. It's by Mary Laura Philpot. It is available wherever fine books are sold. It's it's really everywhere. And uh, I'll recommend that everyone also follow Mary Laura on Instagram, mostly because you'll get to see her two wonderful dogs a lot. That's my... <laughs> I, I I get my fix of of them. Uh, what is your Instagram handle? It's just my name, Mary okay. Laura Philpot. That's so it. Everybody look for that and uh, tell us a little bit about about those dogs. <laughs> they they pop up periodically on my Instagram, and I think they are the stars of the Instagram. Like no one cares about everything else that I'm putting up there. And then once a month, I'll be like, look at my dog, and people go crazy. So I have I have two dogs. I have a beagle named Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> And she is absolutely beautiful and yes, an utter terror. She terrorizes <laughs> our household. And then we have a little yellow mutt named Woodstock. Mm. And we have a beagle too. So they're a lot of fun, but they are a lot of, they keep you busy. Oh my gosh. What's your beagle's name? Remind me. Ari. Ari. Yeah. And my okay. daughter named him for, it's a character in the Royal Tenenbaums, the film. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> so great. we're, yeah, we're in love with him and, uh, so you you can see him on my Instagram all the time too. So I love it. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being with us today. It's it's a pleasure as always, and your book is just wonderful. I'm so glad it's out there. Thanks for being oh, thank with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thanks to all of you for joining us here on the porch. Until next time, be good to one another. Here in honor of Mary Laura is the Eternal Fleetwood Mac.